tonight to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 1, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading from his truth for his name's sake. To bow your head with me for a moment, please, let's seek the Lord together in prayer. Father, we still our hearts once again around the throne, and we do so, Lord, because we are conscious of our need of heavenly power, an unction, an anointing, an endowment that can only come from the Holy Ghost. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt close us in with thyself. The devil is a master at getting our thoughts upon other things, even in the midst of the preaching. He's no doubt the greatest distraction thy people face day in and day out. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt defeat his plans. Thou wilt give to us that ability put our attention upon the word that's being preached and to have ears that are in tune listening carefully for whatever the Lord would have to say to his people grant us the grace to realize that still small voice when it speaks and Lord not to turn away from the loud voice of God when it speaks as well. Show us, Lord, now thy will that we might do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The story is told, I imagine it originated with a preacher, and it's one of those stories that preachers would tell to other preachers. The young a young preacher who had thrilled his congregation with his first sermon. Fresh out of seminary, goes to the church and preaches. It was a stirring challenge to First Peter, gird up the loins. Gird up your loins. For Christian service and Christian living. But then, to the dismay of the congregation, he preached the same sermon the following Sunday. When he confronted them with the exact same sermon on the third Sunday, they felt that something had to be done. So, 
being a congregational church and not a Presbyterian church, they appointed an individual to go to this young man and tell them of their deep disappointment with his sermon material. Don't you have more than just one sermon? Asked this spokesman. Oh, yes, that young preacher quietly replied. But you haven't done anything about the first one yet. That brings a wry smile to us, but it brings to light a fact that churchgoers, a truth that often remains in the shadows, sermon listening may be one of the greatest sins of this generation. Sermon listening. I'm not for a moment suggesting that saved and lost alike don't need to listen to sermons. I'm not advocating, as some are in this day, that we throw out the preaching service and replace it with group discussions where everyone sits in a circle and gives their opinion about what some text of Scripture says. But I am saying that if all that churchgoers do is listen to sermons as an end in itself, that's all they do is listen to them and make no attempt to transform what they hear to living, then they are sinning against God. And I believe, I suspect, it's a sin that is rampant in our day. Sermon listening, sermon tasting, but not sermon doing. That young preacher in that story knew that Christianity does not consist in merely uh, collecting a whole lot of orthodox sermons. He knew that Christianity means far more than being a good, attentive, respectful listener to a sermon, and even far more than recognizing and admiring biblical truth. He realized that Christianity, in its very essence, is a living force. Christianity is a living force. It is, to take the words of a famous book on the Christian life written by Henry Skugel, the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. Therefore, it can't, by its very nature, it can't be lifeless. I would say he knew as well that a right knowledge of the Bible, a right knowledge of God, always leads the believer to gird up the loins of their mind to serve the Lord. Now, the fact that the life of faith is one of doing, it's a life, uh, it's about growing, being something, living like something. It's illustrated by several things, numerous ways in the Word of God. Sometimes the Bible paints real-life portraits of men 
and women of faith, and they always show the child of God doing something by faith. Exactly why James said to those who said, I've got great faith, okay, you do? Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I will prove to you that I have genuine faith by my activity, by my life. There is the life of faith, the life of activity, a life of service, a life of labor. All you have to do is to go back to chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith, and see what the apostle had to say from verses 37. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. But then there are other times when instead of using concrete examples to illustrate Christian faith, Christian life, the scriptures use metaphorical language. For instance, the Bible likens a Christian to a soldier. Sometimes he's, he's compared to a, a husbandman or a farmer to make use of the agricultural world. He's depicted in one place as a boxer. Paul says, I box. But I don't beat the air. And often the believer is given the title of a slave whose whole life is marked by doing, by serving, by obeying. All of these terms used to describe the believer underline the simple yet far-reaching truth. The Christian life is one to be filled with service, with life. But there's something else that all of these illustrations teach us, and that something has to do with what is before us this evening. Another one of the metaphors you'll find often in Paul's letters, in its own unique way, sets down certain, certain fundamental truths about this life of faith, this Christian life, and this doing, and this service, and this activity, and this labor. Here in this 12th chapter of Hebrews, Paul draws from a very well-known character in his day, and that would be the Greek runner. The Greek runner. And from that few opening verses, I want to speak for a little bit tonight on the Christian runner and his race. But before I do that, let me say a few things to point out why Paul deems it necessary to introduce this comparison of a Christian and a Greek runner. This is deliberate, a deliberate comparison on the part of the Holy Ghost. There are things, obviously, that we must see, we must learn as Christians in this world. And we learn them by looking at the Greek runner. If you go back to the end of chapter 10, you'll find Paul strongly exhorting these Christians not to cast away their confidence. He tells them that they have need of patience. 
Why does he tell them that? Well, because they were going through some heavy-duty persecution for the cause of Christ just because they were Christians. Jews, but who had put their faith in Christ. And when they became Christians, they, in essence, turned their backs upon over 1,500 years of tradition, ceremony. And they were viewed, therefore, as outcasts from the Jewish community. And the temptation was, as it always is when a believer has to genuinely suffer for his faith and for the cause of Jesus Christ, the temptation was to go back to the old religion of their fathers. And the constant mantra coming from the Jews was, look what we have and look what you don't have. We're better. We have the high priest. We have the temple. We have the sacrifices. What do you have? You have nothing. You should come back. So what they really needed at this point in time was to not cast away the confidence they had put in Christ. And they needed to patiently endure the suffering. Just a little while and it would be passed. Right now what they needed was to live by faith. So... So doesn't he say that? Chapter 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my draw back. You go back. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So chapter 11 after making it clear what you need, the just shall live by faith. What you need is by faith to patiently endure, to go get through this rough patch, and all be well. He then begins chapter 11 with concrete examples of the men and women who lived and who endured heartache and suffering and pain in obedience to God's word. They did it by faith. Now Paul brings in, that's the context, now he brings in this illustration of the Greek runner, which brings me to my first point regarding the Christian runner and his race. I want to look at the Christian runner's patrons. First off, patrons. A patron, of course, is a person who promotes and supports some other person, activity, or institution. You've, you've heard the expression, don't patronize me. You know, Don't come on with this support like you're all for me. A patron is one who, who supports and promotes something or someone else. The, the, the patrons of the Christian runner are found in verse 1. We also, that's in comparison to the Old Testament saints, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, the reference to the cloud of witnesses has nothing to do with the believers up in heaven looking down from the battlements upon the church. 
The word cloud is used in Scripture to refer to a great number. Crowd might be a better word. There's a crowd of them. Let me explain the scene the Apostle is describing here, a scene that would have been very familiar to most of his audience. Once every five years there was a celebration in honor of the Roman god Jupiter, and that was held in a town called Olympia. It was the greatest athletic event of its day, where an incredible multitude from all the states of Greece and the surrounding countries attended these games as spectators. There were all kinds of events, everything from boxing, and if you think boxing today is brutal, you think MMA is brutal, you have no idea the kind of boxing they engaged in. Leather straps embedded with glass and metal to beat their opponent to the pulp. So Paul says, I box, but I don't beat the air. To wrestling, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul is once again alluding the Christian and his warfare. And that also included racing. In the race to which Paul is referring to in this chapter, a course was marked out, as it is today in the Olympics. A course is marked out for the runners, and a platform was erected at the end of that course on which sat the judges. And the judges were made up of men who had themselves won the honors in previous Olympic competitions. That was one of the honors that was given to them for winning. The victors in the morning did not receive their prize until the evening. And what did they do? They joined the band of spectators that lined the race, no stand, they lined the race course and cheered the runners on. Now you see what Paul meant by this great crowd of witnesses that surrounds us, that encompasses us. He's referring to all those who have already run the race of faith. And their lives serve as the Christians, runners, patrons. Their lives support us and encourage us to run on in this race. He is going to get to Jesus Christ in a bit. But do not let that blind you to the fact that Paul is using the lives of other believers as something they were to look to as an example, as an encouragement for them to keep on running the race. Don't miss that. That's exactly why chapter 11 is there. Look at what those men and women did by faith. Look at them, consider them, 
Spend your time thinking about them as you seek to run this race with patience. Notice how the apostle calls them a cloud of witnesses. A witness is simply one who gives his testimony. He, he bears witness to something. And Paul is saying that all of these saints he has mentioned in chapter 11, both named and unnamed, they bear testimony. And to what they do they bear testimony? They all bear testimony, number one, to the necessity of faith to live this Christian life. You can't do it. You can't run the race. There's no way. And there's especially no way that you're going to be able to run the race when you are uh, in the midst of tribulation and trouble, apart from faith. You give up. You quit. Those cloud of witnesses bear witness to the necessity of faith. They bear witness to the power of faith. They did it. They did it. I like the fact that there was a good lot of unknowns that finished the course. Don't know their names. Nobodies. But they're in this great cloud of witnesses, along with Moses and Abraham and Caleb. They bear witness to the sufficiency of faith for every trial. I've had some trials in my day. I'll have some more before it's over. But I've never had to face being sawn asunder. Never. Here in this 11th chapter is a list of people, people like you and me. People who had troubles of every stripe and color. People who went through much suffering, great persecution. But by how they lived their lives... How they lived their lives, they testified that the just shall indeed live by faith, and that indeed faith is the victory that overcomes. I'll think for a moment of just who these people were. They're described in verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11 as having not received the promise. And as not having been, quote, made perfect. What's that mean? Well, it means they all lived before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They all lived before the finished work of Calvary, before the resurrection, before Christ entered heaven as their great high priest and sat down at the right hand of God to ever live to make intercession for them. In other words, they didn't have what we have. They didn't have the light. They didn't have the knowledge of the gospel that we have. They were living in a times of, of shadows and types and figures. Where there were a lot of things that just weren't clear to them. Hard for us to really appreciate that. 
I'm not saying they were ignorant, but my, they were not living in the, the bright noonday sun of the gospel as we are. Matthew 13, verse 17, Christ said, Many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye, to his disciples, have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And yet, in spite of living in uh, the dawn or the gray of the Old Testament era, and trials and sufferings that they went through, they ran the race and they finished it. You see what Paul's saying? Shall not we do the same? You're not only the, you're not the only one who has to endure the trials. There's a great multitude of believers who've gone before you. And their lives surround you and they encourage you in the midst of your troubles. Just keep plodding on in the race. Just keep running. If they, if they did that with only what would be in comparison a little spark. Yet they remain constant. What excuse will we have if we don't remain constant? I move on to look at the Christian runner's preparation. Paul goes on with his figure. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The allusion is, of course, to what these runners would do in preparation to run the race. He would take off any extraneous clothing, anything that would impede him, anything that would slow him down, that might trip him up. Anything. The application to the Christian, I think, is quite obvious. We all have excess baggage that we need to put off in order to run this race. The apostle said, let us lay aside. He included himself among those who had weights and sins that needed to be laid aside. So all of us here tonight, regardless of how long we've been saved, regardless of our spiritual condition, we need to heed that admonition. And I want you to see how Paul makes this distinction between what hinders us in running the Christian race. He speaks of weights. Let us lay aside the weights and the sin, which doth so easily beset us. I conclude, therefore, that the weights are not to be confused with what he has in mind by the sin. It's not synonyms here. The weights are not the same thing as the sin. He's giving them counsel to help them run 
a race that's very difficult to run under their circumstances. And he's saying, if you're going to run this race of faith, here's what you must do. You've got to get rid of the impediments. You've got to get rid of that which is going to hinder you. First, lay aside every weight. That word simply means impediment. Anything that would hinder the believer in his race for the prize. Because that's what he's doing. He's racing for the prize. He's racing for the finish line. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for the finish line. I'm looking to cross the finish line. This life is all about getting to the end of it and crossing the finish line. This life is not all about this world. It's about getting to the end. Finishing the race. I want to be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Definite article each time, by the way, in that text. Paul says that to run this race with patience, because that's what's needed. That's what he kept telling him, you guys need patience. You guys need patience. We must abandon and carefully avoid anything that would hamper or that would hurt us spiritually. Certainly anything sinful must be put off, but as I've already pointed out, Paul is making a distinction here. These weights, therefore, are are not something that are uh, sinful in themselves. Matter of fact, they could be commendable. But when those things which are, you know, all right, become the focus of our lives, when they take first place, they become our real interest. They become the very thing that we continually think about and they continually talk about and continually live for. You now are dealing with a weight that's got to be put off. It's an impediment. When we give them a place in our pursuits, as if we can't live a day without them. As if we can't get by. At that point in time, the mentality is, this is something essential to faith. It's something essential to my Christian life. And once you've said that, basically... You're not running the race. It is the the, the duty of every child to love and honor its mother and father. But if we love them more than we love Christ, we have a weight that hinders us. It's our duty to be conscientious in our business, to be hard workers, diligent. But if that duty becomes a devotion of your life, if you begin to devote 
so much time and energy to the affairs of this world, to the business, and you have so little time to devote to the Lord and to the Lord's work, then you are robbing God and you're hindering your ability to run the race with patience. It's an impediment. It must be laid aside. There's nothing wrong. Oh, I've got to qualify that one. Nothing wrong in and of itself with reading a newspaper or a magazine as long as what you're looking at is not immoral, not tempting. Nothing wrong with doing that. But when you know what's in that newspaper or that magazine better than you know your Bible, then it's a weight. If you know more about the characters of Hollywood movies than you know about the characters of God's Word, you got a problem, a real problem. Something has gone drastically wrong. It's like you're trying to run this race and you've got uh, two coats on, five pair of pants, and you're really hampered. You then would expect, I, I shouldn't be surprised if I don't make much progress. If I've got this kind of hindrance, I should not be surprised if I'm not making much progress in the race. It's going to be slow going. It's good to take care of your body. Play a sport. I can only conclude from Paul's constant use of this, he was an avid spectator of the sports of his day. He, he, he knew about them intimately. But when sports becomes the topic of your conversation and the real pursuit of your life, and you can do a fill-in-the-blank. It doesn't have to be sports. It could be anything. When you know more about that thing than you do the Lord, when the literature that you read is more concerned with that thing than your soul, then it's, it's a hindrance in your Christian race. Amen. And you've got to get rid of it. We are not wiser than God. We are not wiser than God. We don't want to think for one moment that, oh, that might be true for some people, but it's not true for me. I can do this. No, you can't. You cannot do this. These weights aren't limited to the secular world. 
they crop up in the religious realm as well. There are believers who want to intrude into areas, for instance, they want to intrude into areas of theology that God has seen fit to leave hidden. And yet they pursue such things. They spend their time reading about them and talking about them. It's like they live for them. The great mysteries, the, the truths that God has hidden, and, and yet there are vast amounts of truth in God's Word that have not been hidden that they don't bother with. And they need to know them. It's what I don't know that's, that's not, it's what I do know that's my concern. There is this encumbering weight of giving heed, as Paul puts it to 1 Timothy chapter 1, to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than God, godly edifying. I was struck with something Spurgeon said to one of his devotionals. The text he was dealing with was Titus chapter 3 verse 9 where Paul tells Titus, avoid foolish questions. Avoid them. There's always someone ready to ask a foolish question. Spurgeon said, our days, this is, this is now 1860, 70. Our days are few and are far better spent in doing good than in disputing over matters which are at best of minor importance. Our churches suffer much from petty wars over obtruse points and unimportant questions. You see, the devil doesn't really care what it is that keeps us from running the race just as long as it does the job. And he's quite happy to take those mysterious points of theology as a distraction. And when he can so far delude us into making us believe that we are running the course when in actuality we are either standing still or we're worse, running in the opposite direction of the finish line. He reckons that that's icing on the cake. Moving on from the weights. Let's look at the sin, which so easily besets us. That phrase, which doth so easily beset, is one that has given interpreters a difficult time for centuries. For centuries. Part of the reason for that. It's a word, and it's only one word in the original. It's a word that occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And to this date, it is found nowhere else in Greek classical literature to have a comparison to. Only here. So the only thing we have to come to its meaning is the etymology of the word and how it's used in context. It's a word that is actually compound, a compound of three words. Those three words are well, around, and stand. 
Putting them all together, you have the idea of something that stands well around us or that well surrounds us. Thinking again this idea of the runner, he would rid himself of any loose garment that would cling to him and cause him to be entangled in, thereby slowing him down. In this case, it is obviously an inward sin that Paul is pointing out as that which so easily surrounds us, so easily trips us up and hinders us in this race. And I say inward because sin is in the singular. The sin. It's probably true that every individual believer has a tendency to some particular sin more than others. It's referred to as our besetting sin, and that's how often this particular text has been preached, but it's not about a besetting sin. It's not about you have your besetting sin and I have my besetting sin. I just want you to know I have more than one besetting sins, but that's beside the point. This phrase in its context indicates that there was a sin, a sin, that these Hebrew Christians were especially liable to commit because of the circumstances they found themselves in. And that sin, a sin for which this entire epistle was written to guard against, was this yielding to an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's what the sin was. The evil heart of unbelief. Picture again in your mind what they were going through. These Hebrew Christians had an inbred prejudice for Judaism. That was their home. That's where they were comfortable. They were suffering greatly for their profession as Christians. These Christians... Many had already gone back and walked no more with Christ. They apostatized, proving they weren't true disciples in the first place. And then there was a daily plea from their friends and from their family members, come back home. Now, you know, folks, it's easy to just read that, but you put yourself in their place. Do you realize how strong the compulsion was? It was shaking their faith. No doubt about it. While they must... 
put off the weights. They must lay aside these hindrances, these impediments. The one thing they must do above all else is guard against this heart of unbelief. Unbelief. If they failed there... If those who professed to be believers, they professed to have faith in Christ, actually quit believing, quit trusting, then they would walk away. You see, it's unbelievers who walk away. Unbelievers walk away. How vital it was then that they put off everything that would hinder disturb and weaken their faith in Jesus Christ. That would lead them to distrust the Lord. That would stir them to doubt the promises he had made to them. When you and I begin to doubt the promises, we are in trouble. And we are not running the race of faith with patience. It's dangerous ground. I mean, listen, folks. Those, those people who... And, and, and you can read about it in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. They walked away from it all. It didn't just happen like this overnight. They had many privileges... Because they were assembling with the saints of God. Yes, we're believers. But it proved at the end of the day that they were not believers. Mm, these promises. Even though the apostle knows right well, as he made it plain twice in this epistle, he, he says, you must endure to the end. And he also said, I, we are of those that believe that you will endure to the end, that you will not turn away. Yet he still says, you must, you must put away anything that will strengthen this unbelief. Anything and everything. Lay it aside. Get rid of it. Anything that hampers your faith. It's the testimony of every Christian who has been exposed to severe trials and has had to suffer persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Ask them what they found to be their most dangerous enemy, the most dangerous time. What had the power to disturb them and to dishearten them? What power they were the most afraid of? And they'll all tell you with one voice, I was afraid I would doubt God. I was afraid I would not believe what's written in the Word of God. Have you ever in your life, ever in your walk with the Lord, had the fear that you would not endure to the end? Yes, I have. I have. And I can tell you it hasn't been when the sun's been shining brightly in my life. meeting with God and His Word and prayer. The Lord's face is shining. It's been when the Lord's face has been hidden. And everything around me tells me 
it's over. You're not going to make this. You're not going to endure to the end. Right then and there, it's been the sin of unbelief that's been at work. Unbelief. Ask yourself the question, what really is the root of all of your sins and all of your sorrows? It is unbelief. Genesis chapter 3, when Eve took the fruit, She was deceived by the tempter. Matthew Henry points out it was the sin of unbelief. Hath God said, the devil said to her. Hath God said, well, and she doubts. She falls. And from that unbelief has been spawned a world of depravity and wickedness and sin. So, Henry said, unbelief is the seedbed of all sin. You understand why three times in Scripture and the constant testimony is the just The righteous shall live by faith. My daughter, one of my daughters has been in Italy and she was asking me about the steps, Martin Luther. Those are steps where he was converted. I said, no, he wasn't converted there, but there came a time, it was one of three instances when this text, the just shall live by faith, just came like a blast in his ears. You see what the faithful followers of Rome did, they would climb the steps upon their knees to earn some kind of merit and blessing from God. And he was actually, he had been already converted, but he was still, you know, there was still some cloudy thinking with Luther. And uh, he was climbing those steps on his knees midway up. The text came, the just shall live by faith. He stood up. He walked away and never went back again. She sent me a picture of these steps and said, nope, those aren't the ones. The just shall live by faith. Not by doubting. Not by fearing that God is not going to be true to himself and to his word. We ought to be desperately ashamed of ourselves for allowing a moment of doubt to come into our hearts about God. And yet we do. We live by faith, we walk by faith, we fight by faith, and we run by faith.
Without it, we get nowhere in the Christian life. If we don't lay aside this sin, which doth so easily beset us, and obviously, folks, when, he, when the command comes to lay it aside, it's a command. And God will give you the grace to obey whatever he commands you to do. It is something we can do. Put it aside. The sin that doth so well surround us. If we don't do that, it's like taking a knife to your spiritual hamstrings and cutting them. You won't run then. You'll hobble. So I say there's probably no more frequent and urgent prayer that a child of God should send up to the Lord than this. Lord, increase my faith and help my unbelief. The Lord read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we are humbled as we come into thy presence. That thou take such delight, pleasure in thy people in spite of their sins, the weights that they try to carry and they run the race. We know, Lord, thou hast given us thy word for these very reasons. And we pray that thy word will be given good success tonight in all of our souls. Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Enable us to recognize that liar, the devil, when he comes and says, hath God said, when he wants to put a question mark over that which the scripture declares with divine certainty. Teach us, Lord, what it means that the just shall live by faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.